All right, Lindsay. Well, thank you for coming on the show. It's good to, uh, good to have you on and, uh, thanks for, uh, agreeing to do this. Yeah. Nice to be here. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. So I like to generally start as we were talking before, uh, I recorded, sort of push the record button is just to kind of get your background story as to your history, your interest in uh, the kind of therapy that you provide, um, I would love to maybe start there and just sort of hear the the background as to what brought you to this point now. Okay. Yeah, that's quite a journey, a little story to tell. Um, I'll try to make it concise, though. Um, so I, I graduated, you know, with my uh, counseling degree and all of that back in 2003, became a fully licensed therapist by 2006. Um, I've always been sort of drawn to alternative approaches that were sort of just on the fringe, on the edge, but I had like this kind of hunch that, oh, there's something there. Um, I started out with EMDR and like at the time, I think I did that, that was in, did my first training in that in 2005. And at the time, I mean, it'd been out for a while, but it was still considered kind of fringe and like woo woo. But now it's, you know, it's a, it's a best practice. And um, so I've been doing that for 15 years and I still do EMDR. That's one therapy that has really stuck and I uh, believe in a lot. So then I've also like neurofeedback. I did that training a couple of years later. And so, you know, I've always been sort of drawn, I'd always been drawn to the, to those sort of out of the bounds kind of modalities. Um, and then in 2009, I went through a divorce and, um, it was really painful, you know, to say the least. And we had two children at the time, you know, and so there was just a lot there. And, um, I going through that process, I, you know, I picked up this book, um, by Daniel Pinchbeck, and it was called 2012, The Return of Quetzalcoatl. And I thought it was about the, the Mayan prophecy um, of 2012, which it kind of was, but I had no idea it was about what it was truly about. I just was attracted to the book, got into it, and he, you know, he just basically detailed all his experiences all over the globe about different psychedelics, mm-hmm. which I had not considered psychedelics in my journey at that point. I was, uh, I'm, um, I, I'm, I had epilepsy as a child and those kind of things just kind of scared me. And I didn't think I was a candidate. Like my mind just didn't even go there, but he, you know, talking about the different plant medicines, he, he mentioned Iboga and something about that just really resonated with me given what I was going through. Um, you know, he said it was like out of all of them, it was the most difficult, but that he, that it brought him like the most, it really brought him the most insight into his own, uh, spiritual journey. And I was, I was at that time entering into, you know, my sort of dark night of the soul. So it really drew, drew me in. And I just sort of remembered it. It was in the back of my mind, I researched it, read about it, um, discovered it was, you know, being used for heroin addiction and eruption. But even though I wasn't, you know, a heroin addict, something just told me I needed to do this. And um, so two years after I first read about it, I I took this class, it, this, bi- this biology class for just for fun. 
And the the professor was, um, a, he's an expert in peyote. Um, Dr. Martin Terry is his name at Sol Ross State University in humble Alpine, Texas, which is where I lived at the time. But he, I mean, he's this like Harvard graduate and, you know, really amazing man, but, um, li- but taught at this humble university that, but, but he did that because that's where peyote, you know, grows around there. And so, um, you know, I, I went through this class and told him about my interest in Iboga. He encouraged me to, to write a paper on it. And I did, and it inspired me then to, to go down to a, find a clinic in Mexico and, and I journeyed with it for two weeks. And I mean, that was my first psychedelic experience was a boga and which is like you know an ibogaine it was like a mixture of both i did a little bit of ibogaine a little bit of a boga that was um at a clinic down in um uh, near puerto Vallarta, mexico in san pancho um wonderful couple that i they were my providers just wonderful people christopher and mara love them um anyway so like I, I didn't have any idea like the impact it would make, but like once you do something, you know, like iboga is like a, it's like a family, you know, and it just sort of pulls you in. And all of a sudden I found myself part of this global network of people that were like far exceeded my current capacity living in a small West Texas town. Yeah. Um, and then it wasn't, you know, it was, it was, really all at that same time it was just not 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 long after that i decided to move to austin and um so i moved to austin and um in it was about a year after that journey work in mexico that they that my providers had actually reached out to me and asked me if i would provide integration therapy for an individual who had just gone through ibogaine assisted heroin detox. And I was like, well, I don't know anything about heroin (laughs) addiction, but I'll do it. You know, I felt called, um, you know, they were asking me. So of course I agreed and I learned so much (laughs) from that, from that, um, individual. She's, she's amazing. I, to this day, you know, I just love her. And, um, anyway, so, you know, I did that, I was, you know, I was working in like conventional type um, therapy settings, but also doing that on the side, weaving that in. And just, you know, over the years, I kind of, I, I knew that I need, needed to expand that integration therapy to a like a, a facility where people could come. And I, I that was on my heart for a long time. And as I, you know, as I lived in Austin, I got, you know, connected into these conscious communities and things going on in Austin, like authentic relating games and circling and all these different, like really cool integral practices. And as I, you know, kind of put it all together and like sweat lodges, things like that, I was like, you know, this would make an amazing aftercare program. Just like put all these things together, you know, throw in a little therapy, some coaching and, and a lot of love, (laughs) you know, and, um, and so, so it was, it wasn't, it was in 2017. So it's been a little, it's been, we're going on four years now, um, that we, that I decided to just do it. Just, you know, I was working for, you know, just in a conventional <laughs> job at the time, miserable still. And just like, uh, what am I doing? You know, I still doing some integration therapy on the side, but I didn't do that enough for it to be full time. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And I decided to just jump in and do it. I mean, I had no money. (laughs) I started out with no money and just a dream. And I found a house and they just started coming. And, you know, it was, it was really, it was just very, it was all very serendipitous. And um, it's been, it's been a pretty, pretty, you know, there's been a lot of, it's kind of a hero's journey of sorts. You know, there's been a lot of things to face along the way, being a, a therapist associated with something that is a schedule one, even though we're not administering it or anything like that, we're just providing the aftercare. It's still, it was like scary. And I had to really face some dragons and uh, get through that, that process. And, you know, and I'm just really glad that I did. Um, but in, so I guess, what was it about not even a year into it was just really just a few months into opening group recovery. That's the name of the aftercare. I was, I felt this calling to, um, to go through the program at the California Institute of Integral Studies and Psychedelic Assisted Therapy and Research, um, just to like really, um, you know, bring credibility to what we were doing. And, um, and then it, I was accepted. It was an awesome program ended up, you know, as part of it is was the MAPS uh, therapist training course. I did that with Michael and Annie Mithoffer. That really inspired me. I came, once I was through the program, um, I decided, you know, I'll, hey, someone needs to bring expanded access, uh, the MDMA expanded access to Austin. At the time, I didn't know there were other people that were thinking of this too. So I formed a team Um Got on board with Roots Behavioral Health. Uh, Dr. Rob uh, Turnipseed is the the medical director of that, and he agreed, like, "Hey, yeah, let's do this together." And he was also providing cat is was and still is uh, a ketamine provider. And so I started doing ketamine therapy, um, and started getting you know even more and more experience working with um, a psychedelic medicine that is currently legal. And that, that work has been amazing. Um, and trained as well under Dr. Phil Wolfson, who is the editor of the ketamine papers in ketamine assisted therapy, been doing that now for two years. And that's been amazing. Like ketamine is just so like such an under (laughs) like rated, uh, medicine and, you know, probably, you know, my hunch is that is because it's, it's already legal and it's just being used or it had been, you know, up until recently, the S-ketamine was FDA approved for PTSD, but, um, just, just, but the ketamine, just ketamine in general, the, um, not S-ketamine, but R-ketamine has been used, you know, off-label for the treatment of treatment resistant depression, PTSD for, for quite a while now. Um, but you know, had a lot of, there was a lot of resistance, you know, in the conventional medical medical community, um, a lot of, you know, suspicion, like how can this really be working? But it's, it's, it's life changing. It's game changing medicine. And I stand behind it 100%. So that's my story in a nutshell. (laughs) Yeah. To, to, to go to the, uh, your first experience of going, going to Mexico, um, what did you think you were walking into? I mean, the, the uh, it sounds like it was Iboga and Ibogaine. Um, would love to hear any comment you have about what those substances are, what the experience was like for you when you when you actually went through the the ceremony. 
I had no idea what I was getting into. I was so psychedelic naive <laughs> at the time. Um, I just knew that I needed I needed some kind of shift. And so I just went with an open heart and open mind. And um, the experience itself, it was a little difficult for me. I was, you know, again, I'm epileptic and I don't really have like adult seizures the way I did as a child. I can, I still occasionally have one here and there, Um, but they had to be very careful with me. And so I did what is called a slow dose protocol. I didn't do this big flood dose that people that are trying to, you know, like uh, interrupt opiate addiction do. But for me, being a highly sensitive person, the doses that I did do, they were, I mean, they felt like what I would imagine a flood dose would feel like um, for someone that doesn't have my sensitivity. Um, But I would say, like, I would characterize that experience for myself. You know, it's it's different for, I mean, there's, there's key elements that, that are, that are similar between all people, I would say, you know, it's very introspective. It's very, very deep. Like, you know, they call it, um, a waking dream. So it's like, you know, you're seeing like, you you know, you're awake, but sort of dreaming and it, and it, it tends to draw up childhood memories, experiences. So it's really great for people with, with, that are struggling with addiction or post-traumatic stress disorder, because so often the root of those, um, you know, those issues stem from childhood experiences. And so it just kind of goes there. It just naturally goes there. Um, you know, people will have memories of things that they'd long forgotten and like they were just like happening all over again. And you just have this sort of like this objectivity there that, 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 that isn't really possible without something like Ibogaine. So it's, I would characterize as a very deep introspective, can be a little bit frightening experience. Um, You know, for myself, there was a moment where I felt like I was going to die, you know, and it's like, whoa, what's going on here? (laughs) You know, um, it was, it was scary, but but on the other side of that, you know, like, it's like, it's like a mini hero's journey. You come out and it's, it's bright and it's clear and it's like, wow, my life has changed. And yeah. How did you, when you, when you took it, is it something that you, you eat? Is it, how, how is it administered and, and how long is that waking dream that you just were talking about? How long does it last? Um, so it's kind of got a reputation, a flood dose lot. They say it lasts up to 36 hours. Um, I would say the peak effects generally last from anywhere from like six to eight. 10 maybe hours. Um, and yes, you ingest it. It's by mouth. Um, I did all the different types variations. I started out by eating just root bark. That was my first like initiatory dose. And I mean, just like little or literal shreds of little bark, you know, it wasn't even like the powdery, uh, form of the root bark. It was kind of, you, you chew it up, you know, like they do in Africa. Mm-hmm. And my provider, you know, he has been initiated by the Bwiti in Africa where this ceremonial, you know, medicine, this sacramental medicine comes from. Um, so he incorporated elements of the tradition into my experience, had a little kind of baptism of sorts. Um, 
at this beautiful like area on the beach of, in the Pacific Ocean where we, you know, he we did the ceremony, um, went back to the house. And I, at first it, it kind of just felt like I was maybe stoned or something. It wasn't like that was my initiatory dose. And then, and they just kind of, you know, fed me little bits and, you know, day by day to see how I would react. They were very careful and, um, you know, very considerate of, you know, like the fact that I do struggle with some epilepsy and things like that. So they were just really, really wonderful. And, and then there's other forms, there's TA, which is total alkaloid and it's like compressed into like a, it's like a green pill looking thing. And then there's HCL, which is the pure Ibogaine ex extract. And I did all three things, you know, like all three forms of the Ibogaine. So, um, and the root bark has all the alkaloids, as does the total, the TA, the total alkaloid, whereas the extract is just pure ibogaine. So um, did that answer your question? Yeah, yeah. And, okay. and the difference between the two, the, um, the two substances, are they both essentially the same chemical just coming from different places? Or how are... Uh, I think it was iboga and ibogaine. How how are they differentiated? Well, iboga is the like the herb. It's the actual you know like root bark, whereas ibogaine is the pure e extract. The the alkaloid ibogaine is an alkaloid within iboga, and it and that is ibogaine is what you know and it blocks opiate withdrawals and is what is used for you know like these big flood dose blood doses for people that are trying to get off of opiates. Um, so that's, yeah, it's like the pure extract. It's a little bit, you know, it's a little bit easier maybe on the system than all the different alkaloids combined. Although I experienced the total alkaloid is the, the best for me. That was that, that resonated best with my system. Yeah. And after you said that, you, you know, you had to fight or slay some dragons during your own experience, Talk about what the after effect was for you and, and what, uh, how it, if it, if it did, it changed your mind or change your thinking. What, what was that experience like afterwards? Yeah, I would call it the iboglow. <laughs> I, I just, you know, at the time I, it was hard to, to really quantify, but people, you know, they were like, what have you, what's changed? You're just like glowing and, you know, you seem so at peace and, um, and yeah, I remember feeling, yeah, definitely more grounded, um, just a sense of like, yeah, it, I was, I was really struggling before. And then after like there, the struggle was still there, but it's like, I had this, like this sense of like space from it and I, I wasn't so in it. I had a little bit of, yeah, I just had like this like feeling of safety from, from what I was going through. It just gave me the strength to, to continue, continue to go through what I needed to go through rather than just like, you know, hide into myself. Yeah. And after, after that, and, and you went into the chronology of kind of your life story a, a bit ago, but did that immediately trigger in your mind the idea that this could have wider usage and that you as a budding therapist could potentially use something like this to help people? I didn't really consider that myself, you know, until, and, and I have never administered it to anyone else. Um, but I, I didn't really consider that until, until my provider asked me, you know, a year later, Hey, do you want to be involved? Like I had a sense that I was, 
that I wanted to be involved somehow because it just felt like I got pulled into this sort of family. Um, I just didn't know what that looked like. And I didn't even know what integration therapy was. <laughs> so, um, you know, that there would be a place for someone like me. But once that was presented to me, yeah, it quickly became apparent that I had something to offer. So, yeah. That space that you were mentioning that it, it seemed like, it sounds like it, it almost sort of gave you a, a certain buffer maybe between what the immediacy of the, the pain and the difficulty. And then after the experience, it just, it became seemingly more manageable for you. Yeah. Um, did you notice that in, at the time, if there were other people who were also there taking a ceremony, did they also seem to have a similar type of experience and reaction? I was actually there by myself. It was, I didn't have anyone there with me. I was, it was just me. I mean, there were people that were, that were there that had gone through it, who were still there and integrating, um, that just kind of hung out, you know, for months after there was one guy in particular that comes to mind that, um, I bonded with. And yeah, I mean, and I know he had abused heroin for years. I mean, something like 15 years. And he was, he's, you know, he was definitely, I definitely, I didn't see him before, but he seemed like just a normal person to me. So I, I imagine, you know, he was experiencing a pretty big shift. Yeah. yeah. And, and you were mentioning the phrase, I think it's integrative therapy. Is that, is that right? The integration. Integration. Therapy. What does mm -hmm. that mean? What, what is that in, in the therapeutic practice? So what that really means is like, Rather than this, just these experience, these peak experiences, just being an experience that we don't learn from. It's like weaving the lessons into our lives and how that can, how, how it can go from just an experience to part of the fabric of our being. Yeah. Does that make sense? Provide. Yeah. So if I'm hearing you correctly, it, it would be sort of like a, a place or an environment after the experience where you could reflect on what had happened and actually integrate the experience more deeply into the f your future and your and your life on a day-to-day -day basis exactly and without having to do it over and over again yeah you know but like i mean these are master teachers these plants are and i believe and many people believe you know of course it's up for debate that they have like a consciousness of their own and and that they, you know, interact with our consciousness and, and they, they offer like great lessons and, and, and if you're open and you approach these, these plant medicines in this way, then there's so, there's so many rich layers to, to peel with, with it. And that's really the, the goal of, you know, and the, or the process of integration therapy is just like peeling the layers of the experience and how it's, how those, how those lessons and, and, and and themes that come up can weave into your life and just make you a better, more whole person. Yeah. So that, that getting back to kind of your your story and and how things unfolded after your first experience down in Mexico, um, what has led to to the your this point now for for you? It sounds like there was still some time that elapsed between when you had this experience and when you were actively involved in this type of community how did you actually get involved um in a more serious way in in that community i just kept it in communication i kept you know i just kept connected to my providers and i i felt a deep deep sense of love for them like it was like i i felt like i was 
like literally part of a family. And, and, and that sense just kept me connected and, you know, and they started sending me people and that, you know, just doing like phone integration kind of work or coaching really is what I would call it then, um, due to the fact that I would, you know, provide this, you know, to people that were, that weren't living necessarily living here in Texas. So I couldn't really call it integration therapy. And it wasn't really therapy. It was more like integration coaching at that time. Um, you know, so that I could do that kind of work outside of, you know, my license. Um, so that's how I got involved is through coaching and, and, and just learning through, people that, you know, struggle with addiction. Cause that wasn't my struggle. Although I had some, you know, some stuff that I had gone through that was deep, you know, equally as, 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 as difficult as, you know, addiction. And, and that, I think that was the, the piece that, you know, these people, they could feel like, even though I hadn't, I wasn't a recovering heroin addict, they could feel me. There was like this connection there. I think that the common thread there is like pain, suffering. And so, um, and I just kept, you know, I, I, I went back in 2015 and I did, I, um, I did a, I volunteered at a, uh, Ibogaine clinic down in the Yucatan, um, with Robert Payne and, um, yeah, he's, uh, an Ibogaine, he's an Ibogaine provider. Um, I did like a little three week, uh, volunteer internship, if you want to call it that, or, you know, whatever you want to call it with him and learn that side of the medicine and, you know, like help people through their experiences through ceremonies. They did more like group ceremonies, more traditional Bwiti type ceremonies. So, you know, I just kept staying in, plugged into the community and it was, it was just, it wasn't too long after that, that I opened the aftercare and, and I traveled down to Costa Rica and met some providers there and started developing relationships and people just started sending people my way. Yeah. yeah. And when, when they would send people your way, was it mostly, are these like telephone converse, conversations you're having to help coach them or what was the dynamic at that yeah, time? Yeah. Yeah. Telephone conversations. Okay. Yeah. And so, and, and then, you know, now that like they can, they come here, I could really do therapy with them, you know, over the phone, it was coaching, it was integration coaching and being true to you is a good model for that. That's a, an integrate, a psychedelic or transformational coaching business, um, here in the U S that, um, is a good model for what that looks like. So, um, but now that, you know, we have the space, I can actually do like real therapy with these people. And so it's, it's a little different than what I was doing before. I think you used the word miserable when you were talking about your prior work at one point in your career. <laughs> um, when, when you were doing more, it's what sounds like traditional therapy. Did you have a hunch prior to getting more involved in, in Ibogaine and psychedelic, uh, work? that this was this huge untapped field and that perhaps even that your patients could be benefiting from this experience and they, and they really weren't, or, or was that not necessarily something that you were, was on your mind at that time? I have always just been very like careful about, I've never recommended I began therapy to anyone. I, you know, I I'm, I'm a licensed professional counselor and I've always been very mindful of that and want to protect that because, and so, you know, and 
that mindset is what's needed in this field um, for this second wave of psychedelic therapy to, you know, remain intact because we all know what happened in the 1960s. Um, so I have never pushed Ibogaine. They've always, I've always just been like, if they come to me, then, you know, yes. Um, of course, you know, there's times where I thought, wow, that would, this would be wonderful for them. Um, but I've never recommended, you know, that's just not the way to go about it, you know, in, in, in the political climate. Yeah. And so I've just, you know, I've just kind of just been just gone by, you know, kind of operated through faith that the right people will come to me, but I don't need to push this agenda. Yeah. And when in your, given that, and given that it's not something that you have ever pushed on anyone, um, in your experience, what what's the description or a description of somebody that you think might be a prime candidate for benefiting from that medicine and, and that experience? I think someone that is, you know, a open minded um, and that is capable of doing the work to integrate the experience. Number one, so they're, you know, they they need to be fairly like, you know. Yeah, open-minded is a good word. Um, and two, like conventional treatment has just not worked for them, you know. So they've tried and they've tried and they tried and they just keep relapsing. Um, so I think those are like the two major factors. But, you know, like I wouldn't recommend this to just anyone. Not everybody is a candidate for this type of therapy or this or that type of detox. Um you know, a person really has to be ready to be clean. And Ibogaine is a very, it's a, it's a very, like, it's a very mind altering experience. And, and, you know, if someone's like prone to psychosis or, you know, or if they, 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 they would be going back to an environment that's not conducive to, you know, inner growth and healing, then it's probably not for them. Yeah. It, it is also a prerequisite in your mind that they are an addict or are there other descriptions of people, you know, um, having had trauma, having dealt with serious depression, are there, are there other characteristics that might also make somebody a candidate? I think so. Definitely. Definitely post-traumatic stress. Um, definitely people that, you know, experience like, I would say not so much like bipolar because that could actually maybe trigger a manic episode not people with psychosis, but people with like anxiety disorders, BT PTSD, um, depression and an addiction. You know, yeah. they're, they're good candidates for this. It sounds like you've made quite a bit of relationships over the years with people who have been involved in this work for a long time. Do you, is it your experience that in these other cultures outside of the U S these substances are woven into the fabric of these societies and have been treated as a medicine historically for a significant period of time in other countries. Yeah. Um, there's, you know, with, or if you're asking about, I began in particular, it's fairly new. I mean, it didn't really emerge into, um, any, you know, outside of Africa until the 1930s. And, I think it was France or Ger Ger Germany. Yeah, it was Germany that um, – I think it was Germany. <laughs> I 
and I, I, my memory's not is failing me um, on that. Maybe it was France, maybe it was Germany, but there they there was a um, a medicine that was you know based on ibogaine and it was used for depression for a short period of time in Germany, but then. It, you know, it, Ibogaine, once it made its way to the United States, it got thr- like immediately thrown into the Schedule One, you know, 1970, you know, uh, drug you know, act where, you know, they scheduled marijuana and Ibogaine was in there from the get go. Um, Howard Lotsoff, he's the, he was a, a, a heroin addict that, like the way it was discovered, you know, it's, it's addiction. Interruption properties were discovered by a guy named Howard Lotsoff, who took it thinking it was just like going to be a fun trip. Mm-hmm. And he, like, after he was like laid out for three days, the story goes. And then he came out of that and he was like, I don't want heroin all of a sudden. Like, he had no cravings at all for heroin and no withdrawal symptoms. And so he started like giving it to his friends and that's how it spread, but it was shut down pretty quick. Yeah. 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 So it hasn't been real like widely accepted. Um, there was, you know, several attempts in the eighties at patenting it and, but there's just been so much pushback from, um, you know, the FDA over the years that, that it just, it's never made it into the mainstream yeah. for that reason. Yeah. I know if, if, if I'm understanding psychedelic treatment correctly, I, I think other substances also have been used for addiction and for uh, heroin addiction specifically. Is it fair to say that Ibogaine is as effective, if not the most effective known plant medicine for heroin addicts? I would say, yeah, of the things that I know, uh, there, there's also ketamine is also showing promise in that area too, especially when it's combined with NAD, which is a type of vitamin supplement supplementation. Um, but I would say Ibogaine, you know, from my current knowledge is the most effective. And one thing I want to go back to one thing you had asked before, like people that, that are candidates for this, like there's also, you know, a safety profile that goes along with Ibogaine, it can be dangerous. So anyone with cardiac issues mm-hmm. that have in the, you know, have like really, you know, hardened livers, like they would have to be screened out because it, it does, it, you know, it, it definitely, it can definitely be dangerous if it's not administered properly into, you know, people that are true candidates for it. So they have to go through, you know, pretty rigorous medical screening and make sure that physically you can handle it. Yeah. For people that, let's say there's somebody listening to this who is a recovering addict or uh, is is on heroin and is interested in, in trying, uh, they're kind of, they've tried traditional options. It's not, nothing is working. They're curious about this. Um, what would be the first step uh, provided they are a a candidate that w- would make sense to potentially take this, how would you recommend, or how would would a, would such a person go about pursuing this? Is it contacting reps in Mexico? What what's the best and uh, most suggested way in which to pursue something like this? I would say just Google, like go to the Global Ibogaine Therapy Alliance website, hmm. and um and just start researching. Yeah, I I mean I would not I'm not. Yeah, you know, I wouldn't put anyone's specific name out there or recommend any specific providers. My biggest recommendation is just do your research, go to the uh, gita.org 
and learn about it and then just go from there. Yeah. Do we know what is happening? Or You just mentioned uh, this gentleman, I think in the 70s, who w- was a heroin user, had a three-day experience, and then afterwards realized he didn't want heroin anymore. Do we know or have any idea uh, what is going on in individuals for whom this is successful and they're able to face down what has to that point been an impossible addiction for them? Well, yeah. I mean, there's, you know, the pharmacological, the neurolog, you know, the, the mechanism of action that's going on in the brain, you know, it does block the opioid, the opioid receptors, but then there's also the spiritual component of the experience that gives people insight into their addictive behavior. So it's kind of this two pronged approach that, you know, and Ibogaine is really interesting. Most psychedelics are very, they, they target very specific neurotransmitters. Ibogaine does, it targets multiple neurotransmitter systems, not just the opiate system, but also the serotonin system, the dopamine system. I mean, it's a very, it's a very unique, um, psychedelic plant and its mechanism of action. So it's got this like way of, bringing people out of depression and also, you know, blocking the withdrawals and the cravings and, um, and also affecting their motivation in a positive way. And so it's, you know, the neurochemical profile is part of it, but the other part is the, you know, the actual spirit psycho spiritual journey that the people go on. Yeah. Yeah. And, and to that, to that story, you know, it's, it does sound like, and I've heard this um, from other people who are familiar with psychedelics that there, there does seem to be, I think you use the word introspective, um, kind of personal history and, and, a, a vividness of, and a remembrance of things that may have happened to them in their past that are up until that point, just inaccessible without that kind of a substance. What, what do people who have those experiences tend to get revealed to them? Is it usually some sort of trauma? Is it some sort of a unknown issue that they haven't up to that point been able to look square in the, in the eye? What, what are, what tend to be the experiences of that personal history? I mean, I would say the experiences vary as much as people vary, but some common themes that, you know, that I can point to are like themes of, of just like compassion and forgiveness, like of self and of others, you know, like they may, go into, you know, something with a parent and, and and all of a sudden just have like a new understanding of why that parent did what they did, you know? Um, and many people like see the things that they've done and, and they're able to like forgive themselves and, and let, and release guilt and shame and, and just like recognize that you don't have to keep reliving the past. It's about, you know, coming into the here and now and changing who you are now. And, um, so, and then it can also like, there are people that also have like experiences that are much more phenomenological than just their childhood things, you know, like very, you know, like some people go into past lives and I mean, all kinds of stuff. It, it, the, the experiences really vary. Um, but there, I would say the one thing that is very, you know, consistently present is some kind of ancestral theme or, you know, past life kind of ancestral theme, um, in, in childhood, you know, the childhood themes. Mm-hmm. You, you mentioned a little bit ago, the root expanded access, um, I guess program in, in Austin, 
what if you can't add some color to that what what exactly is that program what what's its goal what is it what does it do the well root um are you talking about roots behavioral health now yes okay yeah so we were i was heading up that effort to become an expanded access site um you know roots behavioral health was partnering with basically root recovery to bring that to austin um there were many other you know clinic or groups in the running for that over a hundred um and i think only 10 or 12 i'm not sure if I heard 10 at first, but I think maybe it's 12 now clinics got selected across the U S to, um, actually, you know, have that the first, they're, they're in more clinics may be added as, uh, the phase three trials, you know, the results prove to be safe. It's, it's all about, you know, safety. They want to make sure that they don't just like grant it to all the clinics and all of a sudden there may be an adverse event that derails their whole, all of their efforts. So, um, you know, so we were hopeful and we were excited about the possibility of being chosen, but we were not part of the first, you know, cut of of clinics that were chosen for that. Um, and and the the expanded access is really, if, if, if I understand it's, it's, it is across the U S it's one of the first times in which, these trials are legally sanctioned to be tested in a in an environment that's supervised right so mdma expanded access is an extension of the th- of the phase 3 clinical trials but it's being it's like it's granting access to the general public to they they a person still has to qualify the same as someone um, participating in the, like the main study, you know, at one of the main research sites. So, but the, so the expanded access is just a way for other people that to, to receive, you know, the life-saving benefits of MDMA before, um, it's fully medically legalized. And there, those people that participate in the expanded access, while they're not officially part of the, the 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 study that they're part of the safety the safety pro they're part of the safety um, protocol so um, so they're not you know looking at the, those individuals that are participating aren't official research participants but but in a sense they they, they just help strengthen the safety uh, profile of the medicine does that make sense yes. Yeah. So the facility that we're, we're sitting in and, and where we are right now, um, talk to me about how this came to be and uh, when it when it started and also who, who some of the people who are who tend to come here, their their general stories, their general profiles. Well, this is part of the Ibogaine aftercare. So this is, you know, um, this isn't where our clients come. This is where some of my staff live and this is where. We office, we have coaching and sessions and things like that in here. Um, And then we have a house down the road where people, you know, that are part of our, you know, that are part of the aftercare retreat, they come after they do Ibogaine in Mexico or Costa Rica or someplace where it's legal. And then they come here for typically four to eight weeks and we work with them and do all kinds of integration activities and, and just help them to um, you know, like give them the space, you know, going 
going back home to your to a familiar environment right after ibogaine is not a good idea and and you know having tools and you know being able to kind of get to the root of the addiction integrate the experience that's what we offer here yeah what are the the people who end up coming here what are some of the themes that you notice from their life stories is it is it mostly addicts who have just gone through the treatment is it is it often other uh, issues that they tend to want to address like what are what are the typical histories of the people that, that come our main our main uh, population that we serve are people recovering from heroin or fentanyl addiction so opiate addiction and we occasionally have you know someone who maybe abused alcohol or um, you know or that's yeah or we've had a couple of people that were um, that had PTSD that were not abusing any kind of, um, substances, but they wanted to do ketamine assisted therapy. And so they became part of our daily kind of integration stuff. And, and then we take them to, you know, to do ketamine therapy at Roots Behavioral Health or Aluma, which is another clinic that we work with. Um, so yeah, but that's few, very few people. Most of the people, 99.9% of the people that we've worked with are, are um, recovering from opiate addiction. When they tend to show up here after having the IBN experience, are they generally euphoric? Are they confused? Are they just in need of a safe place? What, what's generally the state of mind of people who have just had this experience and then they show up down the street from here? What What's the... It, it really varies. Um, you know, it depends on the what they were abusing, how long, their age. You know, like for example, you know, we have you know someone who's very young right here right now, and he came like bright eyed and bushy tailed and just ready to go. You know, and then we have someone else here that you know I'm just speaking currently that he's older and he's you know had more, more, he was abusing fentanyl and it was a lot harder and it was a much harder addiction. Um, and it took him a while, you know, and sometimes and one of the side effects is, of Ibogaine is that um, it does interrupt your sleep for a good week. And, you know, so people have a hard time sleeping for a week to 10 days. And so they may be tired and, you know, it's just a safe place to just like get back to normal without, you know, getting re-triggered and using again. And it's really, um, by the way, like if a person's going to do Ibogaine, they don't want to relapse right away because the opiate receptors have been reset in a sense and their with their tolerance is way down. And so if they were to go out and use at the, and they were to use the normal, like their, the dosage that they're, that they had used previous to doing the Ibogaine, they could quickly overdose and die. Yeah. So it's very dangerous to do that. And so it's very important for people to have a safe place to land after Ibogaine. And for you personally, have you left traditional therapy altogether and f focused now full time on this type of work or what's your, what's your schedule look like? Yeah. I mean, I'm like the founder and I just run things and you know, I'm, yeah, I'm definitely doing this full time. Um, this is my, my kind of like my newborn baby, <laughs> more like a toddler now. Cause we've been going for a little bit, you know, longer, but yeah, she's a toddler. <laughs> so she needs, she needs a lot of attention. Is, is business good? Are you getting a lot of inquiries? Are, are people in need of these kind of services? 
definitely in need of it, given that we've you know got an opiate crisis going on. It's been a little bit challenging during COVID. Um, we've been a little bit slower, but we're still here. We're you know we're, we we're afloat. I've got you know a relatively low overhead model that I you know I haven't taken out debt or anything like that. So. Um, so, you know, sometimes we only have two clients and sometimes we have three or four and you know, sometimes we have like five, uh, we don't, we haven't typically had more than five or six at once. It's, yeah. you know, we, our max is seven and we've never reached our max. Um, so it's pretty small and intimate, but, um, we like it that way. Yeah. So, um, but we're doing okay. I mean, we could probably, you know, it, it would be nice if we had, you know, more people consistently COVID has definitely affected that, but we're still here. Yeah. I, it, it just seems to me that in the U S right now, there's a, a growing, um, interest and in, in movement towards more psychedelic usage and especially usage for therapeutic purposes. When you look to the next two to three to five years for yourself, what's the best case scenario? How, how would you like to see this facility and your work evolve? That's a good question. You know, I'm, I'm not like of a, I, I would say conventional mindset of scaling. That's not my yeah. goal. Um, if to me, the, the goal is just to strengthen what we do. The quality is, is to, you know, I just, I want us to be, you know, like having a high success rate and we already have a pretty high success rate. Um, but I just want to figure out what the you know, the secret sauce is to help people, um, you know, like really maintain long-term recovery. That's, you know, the sustainable recovery is what we like to call it. Um, and we figured out a few things. One thing that's really beneficial is that people stay here in Austin. Um, that sometimes isn't the best thing, you know, but, but for, for those that are looking for, like a new place to kind of seed and grow and grow and cultivate a new life. Mm -hmm. Um, like staying here and plugged into the community has been really helpful for some of our clients and, um, and just, you know, so even after they leave, they're still part of the family and, um, you know, so just really figuring that out in one thing, one area where we are growing right now, like we're in the midst of it is ketamine. And so we're really kind of diversifying, not going away from Ibogaine, but, um, but accepting people that are wanting to just come and do ketamine and they don't even want to go do Ibogaine because that does require going out of the country and with all the travel restrictions and, and the fear and ev just everything going on in the collective, you know, it's, it's Ibogaine is just like not as accessible. So, so in ketamine, is it's great medicine and it it's also life-saving in many ways it has um there is efficacy for addiction and eruption there's a ton of efficacy for for ptsd and treatment resistant depression so so we're we're focusing a lot on ketamine right now mm -hmm. and um figuring out ways to to you know like expand upon that yeah are you hopeful that in in time more of these drugs will become more easily? Um, I guess I, I should ask: are, are you optimistic that in time these substances will become more uh, accepted in the culture, and that it, you know ketamine is legal as you mentioned, mm -hmm. um, but all of these other substances that can really help people? Are are you 
confident or optimistic that in the next few years or maybe the next five years that they'll also be possible for people to access legally in the country? I'm not sure that Ibogaine will ever make it because there, you know, the thing about Ibogaine is there's a lot of risk factors that go along with it. But what is happening is they're developing, um, you know, medicines based on Ibogaine that like that, that are safer, you know, like pharmaceutical, um, you know, FDA, you know, they're, 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 they're all in the, you know, the research and testing phase right now. Um, but there are, there's one I think called TGH. Don't ask me what that stands for, <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but it's, it's like, it's a derivative of Ibogaine and it's, you know, that it, it doesn't have like all the side effects, which, you know, if you take away the psychedelic experience, arguably there's some, you know, there's something that's lost there, but, you know, there are people that then could benefit that wouldn't be good candidates for Ibogaine, that maybe they have, you know, some psychosis or paranoia or, or bipolar disorder, or, you know, other things that, that, that they could, that, that having this form of, you know, this derivative of Ibogaine would, would be helpful, you know, it, it both gets them, you know, free from their addiction and it doesn't put them at risk for de developing, you know, like, co-occurring mental health kind of problems as a result of doing Ibogaine. Um, so there's definitely some good things there. There's another one called MC18, which is a derivative of Ibogaine that doesn't have any of the psychoactive, you know, psychedelic um, side effects is what they, they call them side effects, uh, profile, whatever you want to call it, you know, but in the medical community, the hallucinogens are referred to as side effects. So it doesn't have the side effects that Ibogaine has. And those things are like approaching, um, FDA approval. I, you know, the timeline on that, I'm not 100% on, but, but they're in development. So, yeah. And the people who come here, I think you were saying that, you know, a goal is to get the secret sauce to learn how to make, um, the experience stick and, and to have these, uh, experiences be, uh, effective in, in their long-term life. What are you seeing right now? I mean, how how effective does the uh, the treatment plus the therapy seem to be for for people who come come here? Um, you know, I don't want to put a number on it because that's you know it's pretty subjective. We we also you know we we lean toward more of a harm reduction model. So what conventional uh, rehab or treatment would consider successful recovery. Um, it, it looks different for us, you know, like for example, like someone going from a hardcore fentanyl addiction to smoking marijuana and, but holding, you know, in a state where it's legal, um, and holding a job and, you know, like, and not being in the throes of opiate addiction, that, that could be a success story. Yeah. Um, so, you know, the, those numbers, I mean, I, I can say it's, it's much higher than the conventional model. The conventional model has a seven to 10% success rate. Wow. And and we are seeing much higher success rate than that, but I don't want to attach a number to it. Yeah. Fair. Yeah. I know, uh, I think Americans in the last few years have become more familiar with fentanyl and learning what that is and where it comes from and how dangerous it is. Does, do these treatments seem to work roughly equally well with fentanyl and just traditional opiates or uh, is there a difference in your mind between between the two? 
A fentanyl, you know, it's a little bit different beast. You know, people, but Ibogaine does, you know, there are people that definitely um, kick, you know, a fentanyl addiction with Ibogaine. And, you know, it's those people, when they come to our facility, they're the ones we need to take care of a little bit more. They need a little bit more TLC. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's totally something that, that Ibogaine can handle. Like as they develop these like carfentanil and these like stronger and stronger opiates, I think Ibogaine is going to start hitting a wall with, with that if they just keep on, um, you know, developing stronger and stronger opiates. It does tend to, you know, it, it's a little bit tougher with methadone, with, with, with fentanyl. Um, it's doable, but it's just a little di- bit different process and people just need a little more care afterward. Yeah. Last question I want to ask you, um, if there's somebody who's listening to this, who fits the description is interested in, in traveling to a country to do Ibogaine, um, is an addict themselves and is interested in uh, the services you provide here, what is the best way or how would you recommend that they, um, seek your facility out, seek you out? What, what's the, what are the steps that um, they might take to, to make that happen? Well, they could, you know, go to our website, rootrecovery.com. Um, all of our contact information is there. If they were wanting to learn more about, about Ibogaine itself, I would recommend going to GITA, G-I-T-A dot org. That's the Global Ibogaine Therapy Alliance. And that will, you know, lead them in the right direction. It's a good place to start. It's a reliable, trustworthy source. Lindsay, thank you so much for, for your time. This is fascinating. Yeah, thank you. Thank you.